0: Last week we saw that God brings salvation through judgment to Gentiles. This uh, remarkable idea that Israel would be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. And so we took from that this idea of God's purpose unfolding, and, and people that we would not expect to be likely candidates for following after God, in fact were, and, uh, and would be in God's future vision for what He was doing in the earth. Uh, and this week we're going to look at several more judgments in chapters 21 through 24. And I think the theme of these judgments is less, less hopeful than last week, in that last week we said Gentiles we wouldn't expect to know God will, whereas this, the, the tone is very much more of rebuke and a need for repentance. I think the main theme being our righteous God who sees all strikes the treacherous and the proud. We see, first of all, in chapters 21 and 23, that God uses pagan nations to strike one another because of treachery and idolatry. We see first that God sends the Persians, the Elamites, and the Medes against the Babylonians in chapter 21, verses 1 through 10. I won't read that because we just did, but we see this vision bracketed as what has been shown, verse 2, a harsh vision, And then verse 10, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts. And so this is where I get the idea that God who sees all. God is the one who knows what is going to take place. And so he reveals it in vision to the prophet Isaiah. And he reveals it in word to the prophet Isaiah. The reason that God is able to do that is because he knows all these things. He's bringing these events uh, to happen. The phrase the treacherous one still deals treacherously and the destroyer still destroys is also significant, I think, in tying this whole section together because we encounter it again in chapter 24 where it says the treacherous deal treacherously and the treacherous deal very treacherously. And so we see this idea um, sort of linking these two passages together. What is it that God is ultimately judging these nations for? It is treachery. Sometimes it's their unfaithfulness to one another, betrayal of one another. And in most, in all of these cases, it's also their betrayal, their unfaithfulness toward God. They're not worshiping Him. They're not seeking Him. They're going their own way. The response of what seems to be Isaiah to the destruction of a pagan enemy in verses 3 and 4, anguish and horror overwhelming me and trembling and all these sorts of things seem surprising. Why would Isaiah have this kind of response to the judgment of a nation that's not his own? I think the answer is probably that um, when we consider his response even to Moab back in chapter 16, verse 11, he said, My heart intones like a harp for Moab and my inward feelings for Ker-Heresheth, this idea that there is a possibility of sympathy and compassion even toward those who are enemies of his people when the full scope of God's judgment falls on them, and because he sees this vision and the experience of the vision itself is overwhelming for him. And so that's, I think, in part why he has this response. The scene quickly changes from his response to the overwhelming nature of the vision in verses 3 and 4, to the armies who are preparing to come up against Babylon. They're eating, they're rising up for battle, and God is sending them forward. There is this sign of destruction, riders, horsemen, and pairs. And then when they see it, verse 9, riders, horsemen, and pairs, what's the accompanying message? It is that Babylon has fallen. Now this phrase, fallen, fallen is Babylon, is interesting because I think one of the questions we have to answer is, is this... Looking to something that happens in the end times, even from our perspective, is this talking about a near historical event from Isaiah's perspective within the next however many years? In the book of Revelation, how is that phrase used? Is it describing the actual nation and geographical location of Babylon? Is it describing a group of people who, like Babylon, in pride exalt themselves against God? These are difficult questions, I can't answer all of them in detail, but if I was going to describe what's happening here, I think there is an imminent, it's going to happen very soon, destruction of Babylon by the Elamites and the Medes who are going to come against her, and that's what Isaiah is anticipating in this passage. But when then we come to the book of Revelation, God gives John all these visions about the end times, and God is showing a link between the judgment of Babylon here and the judgment of Babylon, if you will, in the book of Revelation, what's the, what's the reason for God's judgment in both places? Pride, treachery, oppression, immorality, all of these related sins. So just like Babylon of old is judged in Isaiah's day, perhaps even in the, in the, in the time of King Hezekiah shortly after, so too, in the end times, Babylon and all those like her who exalt themselves against God are similarly judged for pride pride treachery, and general sinfulness. The lament uh, is not likely sorrow in verse 10 over the fact that Babylon's gods are shattered on the ground because why would Isaiah lament that false gods are cast down? He wouldn't. The lament is for the experience of the people in just the the, the horror of the destruction that's overwhelming them. And so again, I think we can both rejoice in God's deliverance and God's punishment of his enemies while also having a sense of compassion for those who are experiencing God's wrath. Not in a way that excuses their sin, not in a way that argues against God's plan, but in the same way that Jesus had compassion on Jerusalem and all the, all the region of Judea, despite the fact that so many of them were opposed to him and trying to kill him and, and oppose what God was doing. And so again, as I already said, this is a vision that God had revealed to Isaiah, which he then reveals here in verses 1 through 10. But the vision is not just about Babylon. It it talks about imminent destruction of both Edom and Arabia as well. The oracle concerning Edom, verse 11, one keeps calling to me from Seir, one of their important cities. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire, come back again. I say, well, what's the point of that? That's really short. I think it's getting across this idea. Judgment is coming. But it's not quite here yet. You're going to have to come back again. It's not quite ready, but it's soon. Similarly, the oracle about Arabia, verses 13 through 15. In the thickets of Arabia you must spend the night. O caravans of Danites, bring water for the thirsty. O inhabitants of the land of Tema, meet the fugitive with bread. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. Again, there's this vision of people being basically refugees, fleeing from armies, needing bread, needing a place to shelter. When is this going to take place? Verse sixteen: For the Lord said to me, "In a year, as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate, and the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few." For the Lord God of Israel has spoken. Again, God knows what's going to happen because He's arranging the circumstances. He's giving the time frame for when it's going to take place, and He's warning the people of this coming destruction through uh, defeat by their enemies. I think essentially what's happening here is God is wiping out one by one both the enemies and potential allies of Judah to drive Judah to depend on him. Do they? Ultimately, no, but for a time under the reign of Hezekiah they do. And so there is that brief glimmer of hope. If we jump over to chapter 23, we'll come back to chapter 22, but there is the reality that God sends yet another nation against Tyre. And people have disputed about when Tyre is destroyed uh, is it Babylon that destroys Tyre? Well, we see the vision of Babylon herself being destroyed, at least for a generation or so. Is it uh, the Assyrians who come against Tyre? That's certainly a possibility. The, the vision is not necessarily specific enough to say, here's the exact historical event that takes place. And we don't like that. We want to say, here's where it happened. B, uh, you know, 687 BC, this is what happened. But the point of these prophecies is not so much figuring out the exact date of when they take place, although there's nothing wrong with studying and thinking about that. The point of it is, what is it that God is accomplishing? What is it that he wants people to do in response? And all of those sorts of questions. And so we see here, in parallel to Babylon, and particularly in parallel to the description of Babylon that we see in the book of Revelation, Tyre is also one of these great nations that in pride trusts in herself, Uh, There's a degree of greed and wealth and oppression and all of these other details. If that reminds you of anything, it's because that's how our nation is, right? When all the COVID stuff happened, our economy dropped. Why? Because our economy largely consists of buying things, of producing things to be consumed. If people stop consuming and if we stop being able to move the things around to be consumed and all of that, then the economy is like, just drops, right? And there's also a degree and, you know, we can push this to extremes. There are people who've said, I'm I'm never going to buy clothes from any of these places because I don't know exactly where they came from. And if that's what someone is convinced of, fine. I don't know that we can always trace where every last thing that we consume comes from. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about it at all. I'm just saying it becomes. It's basically a full-time job to say where did this shirt come from, and did the person who made it, where they paid a fair wage, and where did this coffee come from, and you know all these sorts of things. So I'm not saying don't care about it at all. We should. I'm just saying, us boycotting a place is not likely to fix every last issue connected with it. The reason I even mention all of that is to say, if you hold a smartphone or wear a particular article of clothing or buy a particular brand of shoes there's a very real possibility that there was some measure of slave labor and oppression associated with the production of that item. And we don't like to think about that because we'd rather just buy it and not worry about all those things, right? The reason I mention this also is in the same way that Tyre was proud and a great merchant nation and then faced God's judgment, to the extent that America parallels Tyre we too will face God's judgment in his time. Because, again, like I talked about last week and like we've seen all throughout the book of Isaiah, God punishes the proud for their pride. God is with and exalts the humble. And we can't escape that because it's been true over and over again throughout history. We want to think, well, we're the exception and here's why. But it doesn't bear out historically or even with all these visions of what's yet to come. If there is a nation that exalts herself in pride against God who is God and tries to act as though she is God and does all the things that God says not to do. So think about Micah 6:8. What does he require of you Uh, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? What are we, by and large, as a nation, not doing? We're not doing justly. We're not loving mercy. We're not walking humbly with our God. So why would we think that God would bless us indefinitely? We shouldn't. Now, does He mean He hasn't brought it all crashing down around our heads? And so we can be thankful for that. There is some remnant of those who loved God and built certain things in the core of what our nation is that I think we should try to preserve but our trust should not ultimately be in, in all of those things just sort of helping us limp along indefinitely. The true hope of any nation is that that nation comes to repentance and, and a hearts that turn after God. And falling on God's mercy. And there's an amazing thing about God's mercy here at the end of chapter 23, verse 17, it says it will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. And She's sort of restored for a bit. And some people have taken this positively and some people have taken it negatively. My point is that God's mercy extends even to people who don't deserve it. It says, then she will go back to her harlot's wages and play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. She's going to go right back to what she was doing as a, as a nation, which was oppressing people and, and behaving immorally in various ways. But here's the interesting thing, verse eighteen her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord, it will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. There's another verse, I think it's in Proverbs where it talks about that the wicked store up for the righteous in the day of God's judgment. Evil nations do what they do, thinking they're serving themselves, and God can take what they have done and use it for the benefit of his people think about what happens with Cyrus and the Persians. They pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem out of their own treasury. How did that happen? Because God said, I'm going to make this nation strong and they're going to become wealthy, and then I'm going to take that wealth and I'm going to use it to rebuild the temple and the wall in Jerusalem. How does that happen? Because God knows what he's doing and he's God and he's working all these things according to his purpose. But even in this, there's an element of mercy that even though it seems and against the commentators who see this as sort of a general repentance, I, I don't see it in verses 17 and 18. I think Tyre has, is granted a reprieve, goes back to doing exactly what she was doing before, and then God uses all the wealth that's generated from that on behalf of his people at some future date. But the point is, that God shows mercy to people who don't deserve it. And the point is that there should be repentance, which then brings us to chapter 22. God uses these various pagan nations to bring judgment for treachery, idolatry, and pride, but God's own people should have paid attention to the warnings. And that's where it comes in chapter 22. God strikes his own people for their pride and unrepentance. We see this idea that God uses a a similar nation against his people, uh, just like he uses the Elamites to strike Uh, Babylon he also uses them against his own people chapter 22 verse 6 Ellen took up the quiver with the chariots infantry and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield so God uses the same nation he uses against Babylon against his own people in an effort to bring them to repentance and what's the description here the boisterous town is now quiet What's the matter with you now that you've all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. Your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. All of you who are found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. What's the timing of this vision? There's a couple of different possibilities that have been given. Is it in kind of a hundred years in the future when the Babylonians come in and attack? Well, the nation that's described here is not Babylon Uh, verse 6, so probably not that. Is it under the reign of, I think it's King Sargon of the Assyrians? It doesn't seem to fit the historical context there either. It seems to be in the days and weeks leading up to this force of Sennacherib that comes up against them. Now, does God ultimately drive Sennacherib and his armies away? Yes. But the problem is not, the reason God does that is not because his people have a right response because as we'll see throughout chapter 22 they're only trusting in themselves it's for his own sake of keeping his promises and the faithfulness that he shows uh to people like hezekiah it's not for the sake of the people there's a sorrow that accompanies the the defeat and it's not really even a defeat in battle it's just sort of this ongoing whittling away uh reducing in numbers of god's people as there's all these raids and incursions and all these sorts of things so we talked about the historical context of this. You had sort of the pinnacle of military might under Uzziah and he's got all of these enemies sort of beaten back and he's building all these fortress towns and they're not able to really come against him. And then in pride, he tries to exalt himself to God's place, gets struck with leprosy and his kingdom starts to fall apart. The Philistines take this part of it when Ahaz is king, uh, the, uh, or with Jotham is king, and and the uh, Edomites take this part of it when Ahaz is king. And it just starts crumbling and little bits and pieces being taken away. That takes its toll on the population of the nation as parts of the edges of the kingdom start to get taken away. And that, I think, is the primary thing that Isaiah is lamenting here. There is, there is also people dying of things like famine and lack of what they need, not just because they fall in battle. And again, we see some of that here in verses 2 and 3. So what's the response? Sorrow, verses 4 through 8. I said, Turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. already read verse 6. Your choice's valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate, and he removed the defense of Judah. Why are the people defeated by and large? You know, their attitude is, we're strong, we'll be fine. We have all these people to help us." Isaiah's outlook is not so optimistic. Why? Verse eight. "In that day you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. Verse nine. You saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall and you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool but you did not depend on him who made it nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago what's their problem they're trusting in their own weapons their own schemes themselves instead of God who orchestrated the events that they were facing so if you had an army come up against you would it be wise to make preparations absolutely but the thing that was going to save them was not their preparations the thing that was going to save them was God's presence with them, which they were ignoring and forgetting and turning away from. So then we come to the verses that we read in the scripture reading. Why does God send these enemies against the people of Israel? It's to provoke their repentance. He calls them to do these signs of, of repentance, these outward visible signs, weeping, wailing, shaving the head and wearing sackcloth. Now, that's not how we weep and mourn today. We do things like putting on dark clothing, and there is some degree of crying, but it's not like we have paid mourners who wail at a funeral like there would be, have been in their culture. And it's not as though we go and we take dust, and we put dust on our heads, and we shave our heads, and shave our beards, and all those sorts of things as a sign of mourning. That's what they did in their day. That was an external, visible sign of mourning that was supposed to accompany an internal repentance of their heart, turning away from their sin, turning back to God. So God says, show these signs of repentance. Same thing Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you brood of vipers, um, or even John the Baptist. Why are you coming to be baptized? Do fruit in keeping with repentance. Doesn't matter if you get dipped in the water. If your heart's not in it, you just got wet. It has no significance, right? And so uh, God wanted the people of Judah, instead of trusting in themselves, To show these signs of repentance, going back to this idea, God gives grace to the humble, He exalts them, He delivers them, He helps them, but instead of this, they went their own way. If we see in verse 13, this shocking response, instead of external visible signs of repentance, what do they do? There's gladness, there's frolicking, there's slaughtering of cattle and of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine, and then this... Amazing statement, amazing in a bad way. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. All right. So you just spent all this time shoring up the wall, making a place for the water to collect, so you don't run out of water. Um, preparing weapons to sort of repulse the invaders. What's the what's another really important thing if you're going to be besieged? Have plenty of food stored up. And they're not storing it up. They're having a party and engaging in this revelry and saying, well, we might die tomorrow. So there's this, there's this inconsistency in their minds going from we're making preparations to saying, ah, it doesn't matter, we might die anyway, so let's just have a party and eat up all our food and, and enjoy ourselves. How can this be? Well, I mean, it's what James talks about. The person whose heart's not fixed on God, who lacks wisdom, is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Paul talked about people in the church not being carried back and forth by every wind of doctrine. When we are not fixed on God, we're going to be inconsistent and indecisive and just back and forth about everything in life. Because there's nothing to anchor our hope. That was the problem for them. So they're doing this bizarre response to... I mean, at one level it makes sense, it just doesn't make sense in light of what they had done in the verse before. The verses before. They're like, well, we might die, so let's just throw a party. Which was the exact opposite. God didn't want them to have happiness and partying, God wanted them to be thoughtful and reflective and consider why things were the way that they were. So a quick aside, when we encounter difficult circumstances in life, they're not like Aesop's fables that we can always figure out what the moral of the story is. And yet God is teaching us things through the difficulties that he brings into our lives. And far too often what we try to do is say I'm lonely, so I'm just going to fill my life with a lot of time with people, so then I'm not lonely. Or I'm sad, so I'm going to play happy music, so I don't feel sad anymore. Or I don't something happened with my job, so I'm just going to go do all these activities so I don't have to face up to that. When we have this response that the people of Judah did to what God wants us to do, which is to turn to Him humbly and repentantly in times of difficulty, and our immediate response is, how can I get out of it at all costs? We fail to have the right response, and we fail to learn what God is teaching us in the midst of a particular circumstance. And again, it might not be anything particularly profound or necessarily anything new. Sometimes God has to teach us the same lessons over and over and over again. But the question is, are we going to have a right response when he brings those difficulties into our lives? Or are we going to try to ignore them and run away from them? And not all escape is evil. Um if you're facing something that is just overwhelming, it's not wrong to say, you know, here's a favorite book. I'm going to go read that for a few minutes and then I'm going to come back and face the realities of life. Or, yeah, this is really hard, but there's also this legitimate outlet that God is... Getting. You know, it's it. life is 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 lonely or whatever else, but God has brought these friends and so we can spend time with... There's nothing wrong with that. The question is... Do we use that as a way to avoid what God is doing in our lives? And so then, verse 14, because of their response of rebellion and of refusing to repent, surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die. So there is a sense, and verse 14 is a transitional verse. Some see it as going with 1 through 13, some see it as going through 15 through 25, I think the parallel would be what God says to Adam and Eve. Dying, you will die. Did they drop dead the second they ate the fruit? No. But their fate was sealed the moment that they disobeyed God in that way. And in the same way, are these people going to drop dead immediately? No. But their fate was certain when God gave them this opportunity to repent and their response was, let's throw a party, go our own way, keep ignoring you, God. And the reason I say that is there's an immediate judgment in verse 15 and following on this man named Shebna. And then there's a vision of a future judgment in verse 25 that even one who's faithful, his his ministry and service is going to fail. So when God says something like, you will die for your iniquity, it doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow or even right this second. It just means, apart from repentance, here's the inevitable outcome, right? The end here of chapter 22 is this idea that God appoints a faithful leader in place of the unfaithful one before him. There's this man named Shebna, who is for a time the steward of the royal household. Uh, he felt like he had a secure place with God's people. I'm someone of importance. I should sort of make this legacy for myself. So verse 16 is surprising. What do you do here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself? You who hew a tomb on the height, you who carve a resting place for yourself on the rock. Now... Was this happening at the same time that they're preparing for the siege? Maybe. We don't know for sure. If it was, there's this bizarre uh, conjunction of, we might die tomorrow, but I want this really magnificent tomb for myself so people will remember me. But if you're the king's steward, what should you be doing? Making sure that the city is ready for the being besieged? Is that why he's cast down from his place as being the steward? Is that why he's rebuked? It's hard to say exactly the chronology of all these things, but essentially what it comes down to is there's this sense of pride. Shebna seems to be a fairly common person, didn't really have a right to have a magnificent tomb, shouldn't have focused on that as being the thing that he was most interested in, and because of his lack of attention, whether it was during the siege or some other point, to the needs of the people he was supposed to be serving. God takes away his office from him and gives it to someone else. Is your goal to make a legacy for yourself? Sometimes this takes the form in our society of the idea of making memories, right? We kind of come to terms with the fact that nobody cares about our stuff after we die. It doesn't matter if we have 40 of some toy or three boats or a really big house or all of that because... Nobody really cares about it the same way that we do. If you've ever been to an estate sale, it's a really discouraging thing, right? Here's this treasure that someone might have paid $50 or $100 for that goes for a quarter and somebody's like, eh, maybe I'll find something to do with that. So I think if we're honest, a lot of people in society have kind of seen that the endpoint of materialism doesn't really have much point. So the thing that we've come up with to replace it, the new idol is this idea of making memories. Well, yeah, nobody's going to care about my stuff, but maybe they'll look at the pictures of my vacation. The problem with that, aside from the fact that that's not the goal that God has set for us, is people's memories are fickle, photo albums burn, and sooner or later, everything is forgotten. And if that sounds really discouraging, that's because it's meant to be. If you put your hope in that that you are remembered by people after you, that's pretty empty hope, right? Right? There's a song that says, um, um, I forget the first verse, but it says something about should no legacy survive, except the Lord should build the house in vain the builders strive. The point of it is, uh, it starts out, come you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. Right? Right? And the point of that song in the chorus is, all glory be to Christ. He's the one that we should care about. He's the one that we should serve. His kingdom is the thing that we should be trying to build, not our own legacy, our own memory, our own accumulation of stuff. Because that was the goal of this steward, God takes his office away from him. He replaces him with another man. It says in verse 20, I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and all the things that belong to Shebna are now going to be Hilkiah's. Your tunic, your sash, your authority. Verse 22, this ties in with what we were looking at in the Sunday school hour. I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. There's this sense of authority as a representative of the king and the kingdom that now it has passed from Shebna to Eliakim, and God will be honored in that. And he's going to be this secure peg. Like, if you ever try to hang a picture and you use a a nail that's too small instead of a screw, or you use a screw instead of a wall anchor, whatever it is, and you have this really heavy thing, and it just rips a hole in the wall, and all of it comes crashing down. That's sort of the picture here. He's like, He says, Shebna is going to be cast down. I'm going to take all of his stuff, roll it up like a ball, throw it far away. He's going to be deposed and put into exile. And then in contrast, Eliakim is going to be like this peg that's driven into the wall securely, on which you can hang all of the things connected with the household. And yet there's a sense in which even Eliakim's, whether in the time of his children or his great-grandchildren or whoever, even his family is going to fail. Verse 25, in that day, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. I think there's parallels here with what God said to Hezekiah. Not in your day will the judgment come, but it's going to come. Eliakim, you've served me faithfully. Not in your day will the judgment come. You're going to be a secure place on which all of these things connected with the king's house can rest safely. But there's a day coming when even that's going to fail and going to end. This then takes us to chapter 24, where we see that God is going to strike the whole earth for breaking his law, particularly their treachery and blatant sinfulness. Chapter 24, God's going to lay waste to the earth and none will escape. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. The people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth also is polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. And then it goes about all the other things connected with daily life that are are changed because of what God is doing. This destruction we see clearly comes at God's word. It is the Lord. The Lord has spoken this word. The Lord is doing it. All throughout this passage, we see this is God's doing. What is the reason for this destruction? And I think this is looking to the end times when God finally and fully judges the earth. What is the reason for this destruction? Verse 5. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants. They transgress laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Now, The nature of the everlasting covenant and all these sorts of things, I think, is intentionally vague here, because what we want to do is say, well, which covenant did they break? And the point is that they broke God's law, right? So in Genesis chapter 6, what is the nature of the description of the earth? The thoughts of every man's heart was only evil continually. There's murder, there's immorality, there's all of these things that are abounding in people's lives such that they go from thought to thought of how can I sin next. And that's sort of the picture. As it was before the flood, so too in the end times it will be before God purges the earth with fire. Rejection of God, rejection of God. God's imminent judgment, God's imminent judgment. There's a sense in which history is not cyclical, but there is repetition both in what God has done in the past and what he will yet do in the future. So, the destruction is going to come and it's going to be widespread and it's going to be severe. And we see also this truth, that God is going to be glorified in this destruction. We say... Well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right, but let let me explain that for you. They raise their voices, they shout for joy, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. God is going to be praised with songs about His glory. We saw that in verses 14 through 16. We saw it in verse 23. The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. And yet at the same time, we see this tale of woe for the people of the earth, just as Isaiah points out, woe to me, alas for me, why? This phrase that we saw earlier in chapter 21, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare for the windows above are open and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and totters like a shack for its transgression is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. How can there be this side-by-side reality of God being praised And people being utterly destroyed. Well, it shouldn't surprise us because we see this all throughout the Bible. When God delivers his people, that necessarily means that whoever is oppressing them gets cast down. When God um, fulfills his word, it's not always just like joy and peace and happiness that he brings about. God said to the people of Israel, if you turn away from my word, here's the judgment that's going to come on you. You're going to have famine. You're going to have drought. You're going to have enemies attacking you. Instead of lots of kids, you're going to have few. Instead of lots of crops, you're going to barely scrape it together enough to get by. God says this over and over again to the people of Israel, in Deuteronomy and a bunch of other places through the words of the prophets. The same thing is true in the end times. God has said, if you violate my law, here's what happens. And people did it. And God kept his word. And so the rejoicing is not primarily rejoicing and praising God because of something that's positive and joy and happiness and all of that. It's glorifying God for the fact that he keeps his word, that he's a great God, that he fulfills what he said he would do. So this is a sobering reality. If God sees all, you and I cannot hide from his judgment. If God punishes the wicked, even those who by rights should be his own people, like we saw in chapter 22, We're not going to escape if we live wickedly, even though we might claim to be His people. And if God will be glorified, even in destruction and punishment, we cannot think we're going to avoid those things because we say, well, well, God's only praised when He saves people, so He's just going to save people. (coughs) What then should we do? We should, if we are living in a way that's proud and treacherous, expect God's judgment. As a nation, as families, as individuals, whatever, if we live in a way that's proud and treacherous, we turn away from God, we betray people, we don't fulfill our word, we exalt ourselves, and instead of humbling ourselves, God's going to punish us. Because God doesn't tolerate that. He doesn't tolerate it from the wicked. He, he shows mercy for a time, and then He casts down. He doesn't tolerate it in His own people, because it's completely incompatible with the way we're supposed to be living as those who claim to follow Him. So what should we do in light of God's response to people of Jerusalem and Judah We've got to repent of pride and treachery in our hearts, not just say, oh, we're going to throw a party and ignore all the bad things that are happening because maybe they'll just go away. We should repent. There should be external visible signs of repentance that reflect what God's actually doing in our hearts instead of ignoring the warning signs like the Israelites did. And God continued to spare them for a long time after, and that's the problem. We think, well, the judgment didn't fall. Die and you will die. Well, Adam and Eve didn't drop dead. You will die in your iniquity. Well, the people of Jerusalem kept on going, and God even spared them when Sennacherib came with this huge army. So they might have said to themselves, well, look at us. Our our preparations were good, and now we're fine, and we don't have anything to worry about for the future. The fact that the judgment came 100 years later doesn't make it any less certain or any less real, or doesn't mean that God had forgotten about all the evil that they had done. It just means that God's gracious and merciful and unfolds His plan in His time, not in ours. Uh, We see this in 2 Peter. People say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything keeps going the way it's always gone. gone. We're fine because it's not happening right this second. The fact that it's not happening right this second is not... We should never conclude God's forgotten, God doesn't care, keep doing what you're doing. And in fact, the very blessing and prosperity that we... We tend to equate those two things. Prosperity is blessing in our country. The very fact that we continue in prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's favor. Think about that for a minute. If a nation exalts herself in pride and oppresses other people, she's going to amass massive amounts of wealth. It doesn't mean that God's on our side. And ultimately the question is not, is God on our side? It's, are we on His? But... we think that because things are kind of continuing okay that everything is fine between us and God that's not true however much it might seem true in our minds so what should we do we should seek God's glory in all things because he will be glorified and I've said many times before every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father there's going to be a lot of people who are doing it too late on the, on the edge, looking down at God's wrath burning below them, from which there is no escape. The only opportunity that you and I have to deal with whether we are following after God or trusting in ourselves is in this life. There is no second chance what you, once you die. There is no purgatory. There is no, oh, if this person really prays for me once I'm gone, maybe I'll get to go to heaven. Our opportunity to have a right relationship with God is in this life, in this life only. And the Bible says now is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not next week, not on your deathbed, because you don't know when that day is coming. It's now. So, are you on God's side or aren't you? If you're on God's side... He can preserve and take care of you and bring you home to him like he did for Isaiah and Hezekiah and other people who trusted in him despite all the other things that were going wrong in their day. But if you are not on God's side, the only thing that you can be confident about is not death and taxes, what people talk about, the only two things certain in life, right? It is the reality of God's judgment on sin. So, know for sure that you know God, because if you are not certain about that, there is nothing more important than dealing with that right now. Say, how do I know if I know God? 1 John talks about some tests. Do you love God? Do you love your brother? Do you hate sin? If you don't love God and believe the things the Bible says are true about Him, you can't claim to know Him. If you live in ways that are selfish and hateful toward the people around you, you can't claim to love God if you don't love the people around you. And if you love sin and you live in it, no matter how many times you say, I'm a Christian, you can't be a Christian adulterer, a Christian homosexual, a Christian murderer, a Christian thief, a Christian whatever. Can you be someone who was those things? Absolutely. Paul says to the Corinthians, such were some of you. Can you be a person who presently says, my identity is this sin and I love it more than God? No. So if you're living in adultery or pride or greed or whatever else it might be, don't think that you're okay with God because you're not. If God's going to bring down judgment on the earth, and if God did it to call people to repentance, then when we see disasters coming in our day, when we see famine and scarcity and drought and all these sorts of things, our first response should not be, oh, climate change, or oh, not climate change. That's not the point. Our first response should be, what is God doing to arrest the attention of our nation and other nations to say, we need to repent and we need to turn back to God? God, who sees all, who is righteous, is going to strike the earth for treachery and pride. He's done it throughout history. He's doing it right now. He's going to do it in a remarkable and, and worldwide way someday in the future. So where do you and I stand in relationship to this God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Lord, I pray that our relationship to you would be that of the psalmist. O God, you are our God. Earnestly I seek you. My flesh longs for you. My soul yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If we don't want you, and if we can't say that you're our God, work by your Spirit so that we deal with that today. If we say that we are yours and we don't want you and we don't yearn for you, deal with the sin in our hearts that's blinding us and driving us away. Or the fact that maybe we need to trust you for the first time, that's also a possibility. Lord, in all these things, we pray that you would produce your intended result in our hearts and our lives. Because it's not my words It's not the fact that we sat in a church building this morning. It's not any of those things that are going to produce the effects you want in our lives. It's the work of your spirit through the power of your word according to the purpose that you're unfolding in this world. Do your work in us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.